Guys, gals, men, women, children, pets, alien races, you are about to listen to part two, part two of Moe's. Moe's Tavern, prominently featured in The Simpsons, The Simpsons World, Springfield. That's right, Springfield, The Simpsons, going well over 25 years strong, probably 29 years, 30 years. Anyway. This is part two of the Restaurant Fiction Podcast. Let's listen now. Fainted? Cut to. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. So guys, thanks for joining us. This is the Restaurant Fiction Podcast, where we review every single fictional restaurant, bar, and club featured in TV and film, as well as talk about the screenwriting process. Today is the fictional bar. It's part two of the fictional bar of The Simpsons' Moe's Tavern. We went actually deep into part one on Moe's. Now we're going a little deeper on The Simpsons' world, the zeitgeist of The Simpsons, the fictional world meets reality world of The Simpsons. And we're talking to the people who know The Simpsons. I'm talking about executive producer Matt Selman and Dan Graney, a producer of The Simpsons, and they both have many, many years on the show. So what are we exactly talking about? Yes, we are talking about how The Simpsons world is now a part of the Universal Studios theme. Also, we go into the creativity of food in general and how it helps with the creative process of bringing The Simpsons, the Moe's Tavern, and all of the characters to life. I can go on and on and on about this interview about part two, but I'm not. So just listen. Here we go. Let's go. I would like to thank the listeners of Restaurant Fiction would enjoy hearing a little bit about the creation of the other real-life Moe's and all the, the real-life Quickie Mart and the real-life Cletus's Chicken Shack and Bumblebee Man's uh, food Mexican food truck. and Before you came in, we were talking because a friend of mine, Bill Oakley, who actually ran the show uh, at one point, he was just up at Universal City, and he hasn't worked on the show recently, and he went to the Springfield that they built up at Universal City in Los Angeles and with all restaurants, and he remarked on how much good material there was. The menu was good. The items were good on the thing. And they had clearly been worked on into a high standard. And I said, actually, Matt and the other writers here worked on it. I did not work on it because my sauce was not needed. Well, it just was fun because Universal used to have a sort of random assortment 
of restaurants in a section of that park. There was a Flintstones themed barbecue restaurant, Doc Brown from Back to the Future at a fried chicken restaurant, and there were some just generic pizza places, and there was no identity. It was kind of a ra- random leftover brands. And then about 10 or 12 years ago, they repurposed the Back to the Future ride into the Simpsons ride. In the years after that, they decided, let's make a little mini Springfield in that section of outdoor food court and embrace all the real life, I forget if it's real or not, Springfield restaurants. And so there is now a Moe's there that has an actual Flaming Moe, which is a expensive drink with a little LED thing in the bottom or dry ice. No actual cough syrup. No actual cough syrup. It is an alcoholic drink, I think, that has some kind of dry ice LED component to simulate the lighting it on fire that Mo would do. There's a crusty Burger there and there's the clogger sandwich which is from the Simpsons movie which is a over-the-top bacon cheese sauce mega burger which is really, really good. Weren't there some other foods that you guys tried to get them to make? Yes, it was unbelievably fun because they would invite us up for these tastings. They'd be like, well, here's what we got in mind for this. Here's what we got in mind for that. We want you to try everything. Here's We're in a giant banquet room full of these you know, professional chefs who were like great cooks but also the kind of people who have to cook for 10,000 people a day and deliver a uniform product. And so it's a real challenge to make it excellent. These are like food designers. They're, they're like food like designers. and like with food designers to figure out. They're like military generals who are in charge of armies exporting this food to the public. And we wanted it to be good. And it was a challenge because when you think of Krusty Burger on the show, you don't think this is good. Usually it's made of like hamster shavings. Right. It would be funny if it were bad, but people wouldn't like it. Right. <laughs> The Universal people said, okay, we want this to be at a higher level than maybe some of the other stuff we have because the Simpsons and there were a couple of things they, they wouldn't do. Did they give you a price point? Like, did they say this is going to be comparable to, you know, In-N-Out Burger or this is going to be comparable to... We weren't involved in the pricing. I wish we had been because that would have been fun. But we wanted to do a pizza lover's pizza. That was a pizza with mini pizzas on top, which is a joke we sort of stole from the onion. But we thought like if we brought it to life they would be good with it. And I spent a lot of time trying to convince various people. So would there be little round pizzas on the pizza or little slices of pizza? I thought the most efficient way to do it would be to make little round slices of pizza so you would bake an extra pizza and stamp out mini pizzas and put them as like giant pepperonis on a slice and people would just think that that was funny. I think that's unrealistic though because if you just stamped it out, it wouldn't have a crust. No, it wouldn't have an, it wouldn't have an exterior crust, no going to sell little pizza. So you think you need like triangles with... Either triangle... I think you need crust. Either it's triangle or circle. It needs crust. I just thought like, what's the lowest barrier to accomplishing this? Let's just take the pizzas we already have, stamp, 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 instead of having to make smaller pizza trays and... You just worry about the vision. You let us worry about the cost. They don't want to do it. Did they do any pizza? Yeah, there's, there's a pizza place. There's like a Luigi's pizza pasta place. What about the donuts and flavors? Do they just say, we know it needs to be pink and there needs to be sprinkles on it? They have over-the-top donuts with like crazy toppings, right? And giant donuts. I remember they brought in a couple different types of donut here for us to taste. There was a taste test here. They brought in one that was more cakey, I guess you would say, and one that was more puffy. One was more like a Krispy Kreme and one that was like some other place. How do you guys personally like your donuts? I guess I don't like the cakey ones. I just like... Like one bite of a good hot Krispy Kreme is pretty much the best. Matt is right for the Simpsons donut, which seems iconic and needs to be almost this like pretty thing that doesn't just gonna look right. Krispy Kreme donuts sure look perfect. So I think that the donut, the Simpsons donut, should be in that style. For me, for a donut to eat, 
You know, I'm from Boston, grew up with Dunkin' Donuts. I also grew up with Mr. Donuts, whatever happened to that Mr. Donuts. But uh, so the chocolate honey dip Dunkin' Donuts is for me the donut of donuts. The thing that I thought was funny was that they were so desperate for restaurants when Back to the Future of the Ride was there that they gave Doc Brown his own fried chicken restaurant. Just because he was electrocuted. Like, that's the only connection, right? Was that the connection? I just thought... I don't know, that maybe he was fried? I just thought it. they were were just said, uh, Doc Brown has fried chicken. I think it was because he had, like, frazzled hair. Like, he got electrocuted a lot. He's fried. But my take on Doc Brown is that he didn't care about food. He barely ate. He was so... With his obsessed with time travel and his calculations that like he would forget to eat for days like Isaac Newton like he, had, he would just like eat a moldy sandwich and then forget about it and he couldn't care less about food I mean you never see Doc Brown eating fried chicken in any of the three movies or any food at all I believe the only time he puts food into his body is when he drinks whiskey in the third one in the cowboy one and then acts foolishly so anyway Doc Brown's fried chicken. People love that chicken, regardless of the thinness of the premise. The Universal fans loved it, so they did not want to change it. So the recipe of Cletus's fried chicken is the same as the Doc Brown's fried chicken. What a scandal. Hold on, and what is the name of this chicken, though? It's It's called Cletus's Chicken Shack, which was the first name we pitched. So if you go to Cletus's Chicken Shack, the best thing to get is the -the on-the-bone fried chicken. It's a classic Doc Brown recipe. The breast is the best, but if you ask them for breast, sometimes the workers don't know the difference between a breast and a thigh, and you get a thigh anyway, so it just, thigh isn't great, because it doesn't fry as well. There's a lot of weird fat pockets in a thigh, and a thigh is a wonderful piece of chicken, but in my opinion, not for the deep fryer. Chicken breast, Doc Brown's, is A1 quality fried chicken. The food at the Simpsons World is indisputably the best at all universal. I'm just, I'm just saying. So don't eat the other uh, stuff. I do think the Cletus's fried chicken, chicken breast, is the best thing they have. I am number two best. I think the clogger. The clogger's a burger, right? Clogger's a burger. Is there a hot dog? We tried to convince them to make a three-foot hot dog. It might be called Sideshow Bob's Foot Long still, but we wanted it to be really long. Look, you can go online and look at the menu. But you know what's also really good is the nachos at Bumblebee Man's Mexican food truck. Is it better than movie theater nachos? Oh, yeah. Melted in real time? I would say it's guilty pleasure pump cheese, which I like. But real braised meats, lots of fresh cilantro, real herbs... Pork, chicken, beef. So eat those there and get a couple donuts to eat the next day. Don't fill up on the donuts. Right? That's the the best. It does seem like it would be cool if Apu had some food items. Oh, I wish... Oh, if there was an Indian restaurant there that Apu had, that would be great. I would love that. We love Apu. Yeah, we love Apu. Food Wife. The episode starts with Marge, Lisa, and Bart experiencing an Ethiopian section of Springfield for the very first time. Uh, Matt, can you uh, tell me from your real-life experience when you experienced Little Ethiopia here in L.A. for the very first time? Well, I've driven past it many times and and rarely gone into any of the restaurants. Ethiopian food is way too gloppy for me. (laughs) I know people love it, just not for me. But... Having said that, it is a great food that symbolizes a entry point to foodie culture. The outside perspective, it's a little scary and weird, but once you discover it, you fall in love with it, and then you become smug about it, that you are embraced a new world that other people don't know about, and so you feel like you're superior to other people. Thus, the foodie food chain is complete. I'm sorry. I love you. I love you, Ethiopian food. Sure. I mean, everyone living in Los Angeles has spent a lot of time stuck in traffic on Fairfax, <laughs> south of, of San Vicente. Two lanes, three. It's, it goes from two lines to one lane right there. You know, you got, I think, Aerodrome, you know, the lighted Aerodrome. There's just no getting out of that place. You become familiar with yeah. Meals by Jeanette. So I went in there and I had a fantastic meal. No, I know. The food is excellent. I'm, te- I'm teasing Ethiopian food.
tell me a crazy or even fun restaurant experience that very well could make it in a Simpsons episode or at least make it in a pitch. I would love to do an episode about an old time super banquet from the grand, you know, history of eating when a high class meal, like in the 1800s would have 40 courses and would last for four hours and you would eat little birds and grouses and turtles and ducks and sides of beef and then... In increasing size? Are you working your way up? Like you end with an elephant. And oysters and then you take a break and have some sorbet and then you come back with four different soups and then, you you know, like a Mr. Burns type ancient meal of the elite society of the 1800s. What your listeners may not realize, perhaps you don't not even know, is Matt has gone farther than one would imagine towards creating that experience here in Los Angeles. Oh, that's right. Matt created something called beefsteak. It's modeled after late 18th century New York men's beefsteak, where people would just eat beef, 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 and beer. They had to adapt it to a modern situation where there's going to be ladies and not everybody eats beef. And there's another implicit thing, which people come dressed up. They're wearing suits and tuxedos, and then they put on an apron because they know they're going to get messy. So it's sort of like a something you might see in an old photograph from Delmonico's or Tammany Hall fundraiser, an updated retro food event. That, that, and it does have a, some quality of almost medieval gluttony. gluttony, where they bring out giant platters of beef and giant platters of salmon and people are ripping at the salmon with their fingers. Personally, I love restaurants in LA, like the boiling crap. Just shake all the crawfish up and the butter and garlic, boom. Where does that love come from for, yeah, with beef steak eating with the hands, no, you know, prim and properness other than a nice suit? You know, it's the primal experience, right? I mean, it's just a little bit fun for grown-ups to, to be like kids again while on one hand you're dressed up and on the other hand you're just tearing food apart with your fingers. Top Chef came to Beefsteak, I believe. Yeah. And they got kind of into it. And like Tom Calicchio, the host, a couple of the contestants made food that was fussy and like all on the plate. Tom and the other judges seemed disappointed. They got into the idea of, no, I'm, I'm picking up this sucker with my hand and I'm ripping it off the bone with my teeth and that there's something good about that, something real and satisfying and earthy. And if you give me something that's too composed on a plate, you're denying me this other pleasure that was a rare pleasure. People completely outside the circle of people that created it totally got on board with that basic impulse. And Dan, do you have a restaurant experience as well? I'm sure I've been involved in any number of disgraceful incidents in restaurants worthy of fictionalizing, but they're all so embarrassing I've blotted them out. One that comes to mind, I don't know if it's anything, but I, it was my birthday once and I was in a restaurant and I was, I so hate having happy birthday sung to you at your restaurant. I hate it beyond anything. And then I was like, oh, my friends are going to make them tell them it's my birthday. They're going to sing happy birthday. I have to stop this. I have to head this off. So I went and I grabbed the waiter behind, you know, went, pretended to go to the bathroom, intercepted the waiter, told him it was my birthday and under no circumstances was he to sing happy birthday. And so then... He came back with a cake and saying happy birthday. His, my friends had not told him, but he thought it was hilarious that I was so paranoid about having happy birthday song that he had taken it upon himself to do it. <laughs> Which is a classical you know, Greek myth, mythical structure that in trying to avoid the prophecy, you cause the prophecy to come true. That's exactly right. And I did feel like a, a chump. Yeah. But I also felt like I deserved it. <laughs> 
how do you run the writer's room at The Simpsons? Poorly? No, 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 no. Slowly, slowly. Slowly, he runs it slowly but well. Let's use it like a metaphor. Brazing. What was yours? Swamp. Swamp. No, no, no. People forget that the water in the swamp is flowing. <laughs> it may be winding. It may be, it's moving. It'll get there. It's going to get there. I wish I could go fast. I'd love to. I'm just going to keep it the food metaphors. A script is like a great braise. And then you have to just cook it slowly over time and break down the connective tissue of all the ingredients until they merge together. And then they eventually become something del- <laughs> delicious and succulent. And, you know, the, the, the Simpsons, you know, we have a lot of great chefs here. And you want to... Well, you know, Matt is a great chef. Matt is a master chef. He's a four-star cook. And so his process works. I'm more like a sous chef, I guess you would say. I've never really get, been put in charge of the kitchen. No, I can make a sauce, bro. I'm a master saucier. And I whip those suckers up. Bam. I don't know what all the fuss is about. But for whatever reason, you know, my sauces, my sauces are appreciated, but I'm still not put in charge of the whole situation. How often do you take in new writers versus well-established ones? Simpsons is just a fun job. No one ever wants to leave, so we don't have a lot of outside hiring anymore. You know, I am not involved in making these decisions. I'm subject to these decisions. But I think that the people making these decisions have tried to follow, to balance to some extent, a sense of loyalty to the people who are here, been here. You know, I think, but I think there is a feeling that as resources become available, as think we, you know, should be moving with all deliberate speed to have a more diverse you know, more representative, younger, funner uh, writing staff. The bias now is probably towards younger, you know, more rather than established. I don't think like, you know, let's say I get fired in six, when, do you, when does this come out? Uh, so when, it, when they get rid of me, you know, my salary will go to more likely to go to somebody younger, you know, or more diverse than to somebody like me, a mid-career person. I think that's overwhelmingly likely because that's the goal for a lot of reasons, you know. So, but I'm going to cling, you know, desperately pathetic. I'll make it, I won't make it, I won't make it easy for him. What does, now this is for both. Okay. So I want the Matt Selman food tour in LA. The Matt Selman food tour in LA. I'm going to pick five places. There's a Korean restaurant cooking Chinese skewers called Fang Mao in Koreatown. So it's Chinese food mixed with Korean food, cooked on a smoky barbecue, every meat in the world, Korean banchan on the side. Fantastic. Number two, old school, Musso and Frank's in Hollywood. Dirty martini, steak, baked potato. Are you doing the front room or are you doing the back room with the foliage wallpaper? I'm always in the front room. Here, Karina, you do one, and then I'll go back. For a cocktail, something comes to mind. I used to, I haven't done this in a while, but it used to be my place that I liked to get a drink was Mandrake on La Cienega in Culver City, you know, down by a couple art galleries in that area. That was the first place I ever had, like, a cocktail that was served with a really fresh, herbal, aromatic thing. Like, there was a Greyhound there with a big sprig of rosemary or something. And that was where I first encountered, like, cocktails that people cared about. So I thought that that was a pretty... That place still exists? It does still exist. I just don't get out much anymore. I feel like I have to give a shout out to one of our favorite rest- lunch restaurants that we order here called La Saranada de Garibaldi, a fairly old school institutionalized Mexican restaurant, but they are known for their mastery of sauces, much like Dan Graney, a comedy saucier. I, as a comedy saucier, I salute 
and defer to their saucier saucier. It's they've got fantastic seafood, fantastic mole, fantastic sauces, a unique blended smooth red salsa that I've never seen anywhere else. It's not chunky. It's a smooth, unctuous, just spicy enough liquefied salsa that is so it's more sauce than a salsa in the traditional sense. But and for Mexican food, a lot of you can certainly order stuff there that has a very clean, light feeling. Yes. It doesn't need to be refried beans or heavy stuff. Like there's beautiful halibut dishes and yeah, a lot of grilled stuff. They do a lot of great stuff with vegetables. There's shrimp, which can be questionable in a lot of Mexican restaurants. It's always really fresh and sweet there. So I got to give a shout out to La Serenata. It's not the trendy, not the trendy place, but it is like, it is good. You know, I always really liked the place that had a certain warmth in the way they, the hospitality was more important to me than the food oftentimes, you know, just how they sort of make you feel. And so uh, there was Speranza on, I think, Hyperion in Silver Lake that was, is, is still, is still Italian food. Uh, and it's kind of hipster Italian, you know, I just think the people that own it work there and it has this nice quality of being like a place that people care about. If I really wanted to have the, the good vibe there, I'd go on the early side. You know, like at six or something like that before it gets too busy and get the nice seats up against the window. Another favorite for me was Guisados. Yeah, so I went to Boyle High Guisados with an Argentine-American friend, who hipster friend who introduced me to it, and I loved it, you know, because it was like, I had no idea that tacos could be like this. The essence of kind of what I love in food, which is like it's unpretentious, cheap, and fantastic. I have to give it up to my favorite of the three Moza restaurants. Kispaka, head and shoulders the best. Pizza and pasta are fine, but a huge piece of meat with vegetable sides is my favorite type of eating. It's a feast. It's a Roman feast. And as a Santa Monica, I guess I'll bring it on home for me, was the day that the Nathan family or whoever the people that opened Rustic Canyon, the day that, that those people decided to get into the restaurant business was a very good day for a Santa Monica. You know, they opened, first they opened Rustic Canyon, which was, the best food we had over there ever at that point. And then one day I had dessert there and they had uh, this mint chocolate chip ice cream that was like the most, the best. I've liked, I've had mint chocolate chip ice cream a lot in my life. This was by far the best I'd ever had. And then I had the cookies there. That first time that that cookie tray came out at Rusty Canyon, I said, this is insane. This is the the best food bargain I've ever seen in my life because it cost about $10. Each cookie was different. There were about 50 of them. And I was like, well, somebody here just likes to make cookies. <laughs> my nine number five, and this is not the official top five, but I'm going to, this is just off the top of our heads. We have, what do we got? We, we got La Saranata de Garibaldi, Musso and Frank's, Kispaka, Feng Mao, which guys, Feng Mao is not famous. It is a treat beyond all measure. That's why I want to go there. The last one I'm going to throw down is a new addition to L.A., called Gus's Fried Chicken. On Crenshaw. On Crenshaw and Pico. It is slightly spicy, but not burn mouth burning macho. It's not Nashville, like how tough are you, masculinity test, machismo meter. It's, it's just flavorful. Is there a more beautiful color in the world than that dark orange brown of the Gus's Fried Chicken? Is it Gus's the one with the hour wait to get into it? No, the, that's the one in Chinatown. And that's the one where you go and like if you order the wrong spice, your day is ruined. Not to mention the, the, next, the, the next day. Right. And you have to freeze the toilet paper. 
When my wife comes home and opens a freezer and sees a toilet paper in there, she knows it's going to be a rough day the next day. Anything you gentlemen would like to add, either from... Well, I was talking to former showrunner Bill Oakley. We did an episode called King Size Homer. Classic food episode. One of the fun aspects of that was the food that Homer was eating when he was getting fat. And I believe one of the items was tub. And I've always loved tub as a food. And it just seemed to have such a good Simpsons spirit. It's just tub with an exclamation mark. And so I hope that somebody will make tub. And I imagine that if they do make it now, you know, there'll be cool new flavors like, you know, Cool Ranch Tub, stuff like that. So, so one of the great Dan Graney moments of all time was some magazine, like People Magazine, wanted us to judge like America's best ice cream. So at three o'clock, you know, fifty different tubs of gourmet ice cream came, and we all knew this was going to happen. We were all like, you know, we were excited, and this is like a real, this is one of the perks of the job. And ten minutes before the ice cream people arrived, Dan Graney walks into the room deliberately eating a big bowl of ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> if I may, one of my favorite little moments, I think someone would agree, was it was after Halloween. And somebody was showing a group of kids around outside our little bungalow where we work in. Matt stood in the window. He taunted the little children. He said, we have candy in here. And somebody, I believe, who was conducting these little children around, at that moment said, no, do not give the kids. Was saying something about like, don't. Tour was outside. Dozens of kids. And I look out the window, and I'm like, hey, kids, who wants some candy? And the teachers are all gesturing, no, no, no. And at that moment, I look up and see candy flying out the window over my head that Dan had thrown. I saw these kids out there. Matt is taunting them with the candy. So I just grabbed this giant bucket of candy and hucked it out onto the lawn. Like, not the bucket, just the candy. And so there was a massive shower of candy, and the kids scrambled. And it was like money being dropped out of an airplane. And it was – the teachers lost – Control of the kids. Yeah, it was, really it was fun. Yeah, we really screwed them over that day. Moe's is not the best destination for a foodie interested in Springfield. That's what I think. That's not about the food. Luigi's has food. Gild, Gilded Truffle has food. The Rotating Restaurant has food. Phineas right. Q Butterfat yeah. has ice cream. Right. But Moe's. I mean, there's lots of background food places, like the Der Waffle something. There's like a Germanic themed World War One waffle hun type place. Seacap is a seafood restaurant. There's like back. There's like little jokes you see one time, like Kentucky Fried Panda, which I believe was its finger lingling good. Did that air? Did we cut that joke or not? It's finger lingling good. You once said, Matt, that a great joke or a great Simpsons joke is called Swart Sweldian. I think that that would be that a subset of great jokes, which are evocative of the certain of the style and tone of the great John Swartzwelder might be called Swartzwelder. Not all good jokes would be Swartzwelderian, but those, certainly his work had an influence on all of us who read it and saw it. And so occasionally we're just bound to pitch things that reflect that impact on us. You know, it's impossible to describe him completely, but, you know, like a classic Swartzwelder thing was, you know, here's the alcohol, the cause of and solution to all of life's problems. You know, super clean summary of an idea in an instant. Or the gun show, where he's like, give me a gun. They say, well, there's a three-day waiting period. Homer says, but I'm mad now. And the guy goes, too bad. And Homer's like, I'd kill you if I had my gun. <laughs> you know? <laughs> like, Schwarzwelder, in so few words, so economically, taking it so far, you know. Or what would it be like to be rich? 
Homer imagines, and anyone else, if we had the whole room working, everybody would have been thinking about like, well, you have wealth, money, you buy this, you do that. Schwarzwalder's script, Homer imagined himself being 50 feet tall and made out of gold. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody else was going there. Nope. What's, what's his cooking style? He is famous for going to some neighborhood coffee shop, sitting in a booth and writing and smoking, but then they got... They outlawed smoking in the restaurant, so we had a booth built at home. No. Yes. And he was a great lover when he was on the staff. I did not work with him on the staff, but this, I believe, is true anyway, that he was a great lover of the apple pan. And I think would think it was remiss not to mention the apple pan, which I think the, er, the first generation, the real Simpsons writers, right. you know, the real guys, uh, they loved the apple pan. Apple pan doesn't travel. I'll just say that. You have to go to the apple pan. It's a real hamburger sandwich kind of a place. Which... Suits Schwarzwalder to tea because he's kind of got an old time flavor. Hamburger sandwich. He might that might be what he calls them. All right, we did it. You're welcome. Hope it turns into something good. (laughs) Matt, Dan, thank you so much. That was awesome. That was more than awesome. That was just fucking awesome. That's right. I think fucking awesome is better than awesome. You can check out all of Matt's and Dan's work. On The Simpsons every Sunday night. Plus, they have over a gazillion episodes already in their archives. I'm not looking up of what streaming uh, network or Netflix or Hulu they're on, so you're just going to have to do that research. But they're there, I promise you. And as for me, my name is Monis Rose. You can watch all of the back episodes on either iTunes, on Stitcher. I think we're on Google uh, Google Play. We're about to get on Spotify. Also, check out all the reviews at www.restaurantfiction.com. And as always, keep it real, keep it fresh, and keep it on the flip side. Cut to. Exterior. Interior. Restaurant. Bar. Club. Day. Night. At Farmers Insurance, we know the sound of a perfect hot air balloon landing. And a less than perfect one. Seen it, covered it. Click for more. We are farmers. Bum, 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 bum. Underwritten by Farmers Truck Fire Insurance, Exchanges and Affiliates. Products not available in every state. Welcome to Sherwin Williams. Hi there. I heard paints are 30% off. Yep, and stains too. Right here. Mm-hmm. Only at your neighborhood Sherwin Williams store. Right now? Well, August 29th through September 9th. Ah, bring it in. I'm a big hugger. It's cool. Ask Sherwin-Williams August 29th through September 9th and save 30% on paints and stains with sale prices starting at $26.94. Only at your local Sherwin-Williams store. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details.